This is Mike Madrid. And this is Gregory Rodriguez. We're your hosts for Americanata, where we'll be exploring the intersection of race, class, culture, and politics during a time of extraordinary change. We'll be thinking out loud and processing what's on our minds as we go, unfiltered. And we're looking forward to you joining us for this discussion as we explore how we got to this tumultuous moment in the United States. Gregory, it's great to be back with you again. I'm sorry about the hiatus. I was uh, traveling a little bit back to the East Coast, did a little bit of tour of Washington, D.C. and New York. And I, I picked up a book, actually, on the way that I wanted to kind of hopefully take a little bit of your time and talk about. Um, great book. Pulitzer Prize winning author Anne Applebaum writes this book called Twilight of Democracy. It came out a couple of years ago, I think. Um, and it, she's an expert on, on authoritarianism and um, has been kind of a close observer of the decline of democracy um, or democratic governments and specifically Poland, Eastern European. Um, but but it, did, it did point out and bring up some issues that I think are particularly problematic here in the United States that I wanted to talk uh, talk to you a little bit about today. That's Great, right. I, I want to hear the scarier parts. What 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 scared <laughs> the hell out of you in, in, in seat seven B on a whatever continental? I'll use a, a, a airline that doesn't exist anymore. Seven B continental. What were you freaking out about? Thirty five thousand feet up. I was freaking out about the fact that uh, I think for the first time, um, Apple Bomb really writes in 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 clear um, terms what is. Um, happening with the fragmentation, the democratization of democracy. And I think what she would argue is that there's a, um, there's a rising global sense that maybe, uh, this is now, there, she, she, she says there is a, glo a rising global threat to, to democratic forms of government. I, of course, want to talk to you specifically about the American variety and how we may be specifically vulnerable or strengthened against some of these social dynamics that are changing um, democracy. And I, the reason why I picked it up, uh, I had a couple of good conversations back east about this kind of notion. I'm increasingly concerned about global democracies. I think the weakening of our democracies we saw from the, the Trump era um, has made me kind of um, open my eyes and say, if, if America can't be the bulwark um, against authoritarianism, at least the way we believed it's to be, then maybe we probably need more allies and we need to re rely more on other democratic regimes to bolster an ally with, to, to keep a global democratic regime going. Um, I, it, my, that thought may be a little bit too far out there, but I do think it is important to pay attention to what she is um, raising the alarm bells about, um, about the fragmentation of discourse and the vacuum that that creates in allowing authoritarianism to rise. So, so you mentioned that Applebaum, she's very knowledgeable. I believe her husband's a Polish diplomat and she wrote a lot about Trump for the Washington Post. So did she, did she at any point in this book uh, say how close she thought the United States came to becoming fully authoritarian? Um, you know, not like on a, on a scale of one to 10 or anything like that, but she's clearly wrote the book and highlighted instances and examples of what is happening socially as to say that basically the undermining has already begun. It's kind of the unraveling has already begun, and that, which is why the book is, is titled Twilight of Democracy, right? We're in the, the end of times of de democratic regimes. 
And one of the, I think we may have visited on this a little bit. I think one of the most profound things that Joe Biden said in his joint session to Congress a couple of weeks ago, which didn't get much coverage or much airtime, was this conversation he had with, with President Xi of China, where essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, he, essentially he says, she, she kind of looks at him and says, yeah, we can smell blood in the water here. You guys aren't well constituted. Demo American style democracy generally, democracy specifically, are not well constituted to work in a digital age. And you know, Joe Biden, of course, does what an American president should do, which is he kind of says, don't count us out, never count Americans out, we're gonna be just fine. But if you look at the way we handle the pandemic, if you look at the way our governance works in very fast moving uh, moments, which the digital age is defined by, speed, the speed of, of if not consensus, then directive, we're, we're not built for that. We're literally built for the exact opposite of that. And is, is, is our inability to manage uh, external dynamics and internal dynamics continues. I think that that's a perfect petri dish to suggest that some either new form of democratic government, small d, or or some form of uh, a stronger executive or more authoritarian power is probably inevitable. Right, and and so so. I the Financial Times Daily and The Economist Weekly generally question America's uh, democracy and how long it would last. And there are plenty of people around the globe uh, worried as well. And it's not simply the rise of Donald Trump. It's, a, it's the rise of uh, general it, uh, social intolerance in the United States. And it's the emergence of winner take all. I mean, it's brutal politics of destruction on the part of both parties. So, um, yeah, I don't think there's any question that democracy is in trouble. Um, and that that's, uh, did you learn anything from the book that, that I, I generally, I like the parts of books that tell me what's wrong and I, I kind of whiz through the parts that tell you what, what could be done. But, but did she tell you, but she took this, does she at any point say what crucial, what needs to be done, what's, what's crucial that needs to be done to curb the rise of authoritarianism in the United States? There aren't any specific, short answer is no. I didn't take get that takeaway. And that's kind of why I wanted to visit with you on it because I know that you've, 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 um, you've thought about this, you've thought about a lot of things about um, how democracies fail, I think is a book that you, you and I've talked a little bit about and some of the remedies that are there. I was, I was just more, I think, captured by um, the fact that it's not just a global phenomenon. It's not just a Western world phenomenon. It's not just an American phenomenon. But the fact that we may be particularly, as Americans, ill-prepared for the pace at which this change is creating a vacuum. And those, some of the institutions that we built up, we, we've got the oldest democracy, oldest continuous democracy uh, in the world at this point. A lot of other democracies, especially in Western Europe, are a lot more, a lot younger. They were created in a different time. Um, a little bit more deeper into the industrial age, some very recent, that may be better constituted for decision-making and the decision-making process. Well, what and, a, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, you know, we, we were created in the midst of this extraordinary fear of, of, of mob rule, right? No one had really, the American experiment, right? This de democracy, this very limited form of democracy that we created was really designed to be as, as, as just a touch of democracy, right? Like we'll let them vote, but we're gonna put a million different checks on all these decisions right. we make because we're not sure that these people should be voting or even these people that are voting are 
involved, informed, and educated enough to actually make decisions about the government. So let's create three branches of government and let's have a representative form of government. Let's really limit uh, um, um, direct democracy. Let's really deeply ingrain some of these protections for, for minorities, you know, the, the, the party out of power. Um, and so it's created this, this really um, slow, molasses-paced movement towards making a decision. And that doesn't work when you're having massive capital outflows moving in the digital era and new cryptocurrencies are being developed every week and a global pandemic sweeps across the globe in a matter of, of, of weeks or months. Um, and the government can't adjust. It doesn't seem to be able to adjust or move without a stronger executive and with this many checks, this many balances, this split of, well, of government can, can survive. Stronger, stronger forms of executive are the, are the number one path toward authoritarianism. And yeah. that, so, so, so she's saying then the, the, the fast moving world needs a fast moving executive, which leads to authoritarianism. Well, she wasn't prescriptive. She was just saying, she was just saying that this is, these are the warning signs on the horizon that you need to be paying yeah. attention to. Yeah is the fragmentation of the media, the inability to agree on what facts are, yeah. our natural outgrowth of the democratization of information and media. And we, we, although we may not be able to come to some sort of a consensus, we're no longer agreeing on common facts. So you can't have a discussion to try to get to consensus if you don't agree that the pandemic is real, for example. So one of the things that that I think we we tend to do in uh, the United States is to romanticize democracy and to to exaggerate the extent to which we had democracy. Uh, the The Constitution was uh, was created to to create a, a compromise over uh, humans being uh, the the the, the law allowing humans to be owned by other humans. Um, and they punted. They said, "Oh, it's you know." Presumably, the many of the founders knew it was wrong, even though we're slaveholders. So they they punted on that. So democracy, as it started, was premised on people being owned, and let's not talk about it for a while. And then a civil war because they they punted on the issue. We had a civil war, and then uh, twenty years, not so, less than twenty years after the civil war, we created another consensus in which white supremacy emerged, and we weren't going to talk about that until the 1960s. So, so much of Amer what we call American democracy existed uh, because of the exclusion of blacks and other non-whites. There was never democracy in this country that included everyone, one. And I think the difficulty now is that now that we're talking about the multiplicity of Americans ethnically and racially and otherwise, it, it sounds, democracy only seems to have worked in the United States to when it was excluded for whites, first white males and then white men and women. Uh, and so, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, we've, we've, the crisis of democracy has been from, you know, from the 1780s. Uh, it's, we've never achieved it. We've never achieved a multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy in this country. In fact, no, no, no country ever has. So some of it is, um, I, I wonder, for all her fear of authoritarianism, whether the moment, the time is, instead of fearing this, this, another Trump, which is certainly appropriate, it's also time to talk about the deficiencies of the democracies we fear losing, right? Uh -huh. and, and how do you broaden something 
that was based on exclusion. It was based on suppression of, of certain peoples. That that's how whites got along. That's that's how whites were able to. We've discussed this. Uh, uh, whites got along because they 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 didn't talk about slavery, and then whites got along because they got along. They decided to shake hands after the Civil War at the expense of of African American civil rights. So, um, I don't know. It's not something. I think it's a bigger, uh, I think it's a cultural matter. I think it's the rise in social intolerance uh, that, that democracy is also a forms of behavior, not just a system. Yeah. It's not just about governance. Uh, it, and it requires uh, this, these guys at Harvard who wrote this book, uh, uh, How Democracies Die, the two cultural aspects, political cultural aspects, they say that undergirds any constitution, no matter how well-written it is, are mutual tolerance, uh, mutual toleration, meaning don't turn your rival into a monster, into an enemy, into somebody who is not, you know, not even a human, and to institutional forbearance that even if you have the power to do something that maybe you shouldn't for the well-being of the relationship, for the well-being of the country. So I, I really think, you know, I'm not saying Anne Applebaum's points are not valid because they sound, but but in America, the particular problems are these behavioral, cultural problems that lead us to turn everyone into an enemy, one, and to turn every individual into a judge, a judge, judge, prosecutor, a judge and, and jury. Um, you know, I, I think that that's and executioner. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, so I, I think we're in danger because of the way we behave as people. Uh, less than in the way that governments behave per se. Um, I, I, they, both, they both may be true, but we're in a particularly intolerant time and a time of, of massive demonization of rivals. And I think that's the thing that I find the most disturbing and the, the most scary. And democracy does not thrive in a country in which your rivals are monsters and they must be taken out. And that's what we see every day in the papers. And that's characteristic of both parties, both the right and the left. It's a social phenomenon, is what you're saying. It's a, it's an absolute social phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. And it and it's and post post civil rights era, there is this greater sense of multiplicity that Americans are not just white and citizens as uh, we're not just as the 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 first uh, the Naturalization Act of. 1793, seven, yeah, uh, um, said free white persons, that citizens actually are more than free white persons. And I think that makes it very complicated. And we don't have a consensus. You're absolutely right. We don't have a consensus in terms of facts, but we don't even have a consensus as to who's an American. Huh. I mean, it was never really decided that these wonderful founders, everybody talks about how great they are. They never actually wrote that down. Who's an American? How do you become an American? It just... It, 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 all we knew is that African Americans were not included, and Native Americans were certainly not included. And so the exclusion, uh, the, the exclusion, we're really overcoming exclusion. Centuries-long battle over it, which is not even near, anywhere near done, and then the fear that the, the, the whatever democracy we have will will give over to authoritarians. And I think Trump got us pretty close. What do you think? I mean, I, I think it was scary to read the papers. But I'm not sure it's not coming back anytime soon. What do you think? Well, I want to flesh out a couple. Of, you said a lot there that was really insightful. So there's two things I want to talk about. One is I want, um, and you have you have very accurately pointed out that that the left exhibits a lot of authoritarian tendencies just as much as the right does. Would you Absolutely. agree with that? 
Yeah, absolutely. And does the fact that both sides of the spectrum are demonstrating these characteristics suggest that it's more likely than not that we're going to see the rise of another authoritarian figure? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, again, it's it's not. I will. I won't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't like to divide a nation as such so so heterogeneous as this between left and right. But yes, but it's also just people. It's like American people are being extraordinarily intolerant toward one another, yeah. and it bleeds into politics, right? So I'd say yes. Americans. So that and and something that I think is as you care about a lot. You knowing more about how parties function is the absence of the sort of the, the guardrails, the, the, the sort of the elite monitors and, and gatekeepers as the democratization of these, the, of, uh, of primaries uh, and the parties have led to an opening to outsiders, to authoritarian figures like a Trump to come in who weren't even members of the parties for all we know, you know? Right. So it's, it's so, I, it, it, so it's a combination of this, this weak uh, organization on both parties that now allow anybody to come in uh, and without any sort of membership that even vets them. Any, there's, no, there's nobody to vet them. Uh, they're just, if they have enough money and if, and if the newspapers and the television reporters like them, then great, they're going to get lots of free press. So it's, and if they're rich and they, they're, they're, if they're wealthy, if the press loves them, and uh, there's no guardrails or people watching within the parties that are pretty much vacant, as you like to call them, laundromats, that combined with intoleration, uh, the, the absence of any mutual toleration is a, is a recipe for, for left or right, for authoritarian figures on either side. And I, th I think the one thing we can do is to, well, the, well there's a, so in other words, there's institutional sides and then there's the cultural side right. and they're both really troubling and I, I don't think people appreciate just how weak the party system is and in large part i think to your point how little investment there is from the average quote-unquote member of each political party there is no investment there's no mandatory signing of an oath or or a annual dues membership or required meeting you've got to go to to participate it's just kind of a brand that you buy into. So you you once told me that parties are like laundromats. Could you tell? Could you tell us what you meant by that? Yeah, and I, yeah, that's a good question because it does help, I think, explain how institutionalized the two party system is. We have this kind of notion that we are a, we have a two party system, as if the founders created a two party system. That's not the case at all. But what has happened over the years? is since at least, you know, the 1860s, there's, you know, there's been a couple of years where, where, you know, the bull moose parties and stuff have popped up randomly, reform parties with Perot in 1992, these efforts have started. But basically there's a nonprofit status that the parties are given that allows um, for the um, an extraordinary savings of money from donors, contributors, special interests to move through the party system to make it cheaper to campaign. Um, <laughs> and so it's literally become it's a clearing house. It's is a clearing house. It also provides a certain level of anonymity for those donors too, which is kind of where the dark money moniker starts to come up. There's, there's a million different contraptions with independent efforts of 527s around that, but the parties are very much involved and engaged in that similar same type of activity. And the more committees you can move money around, the more you can hide the true source of the donors. 
So it becomes a, it's a laundromat, right? They're moving money to to prevent the reveal in part, in large part, to prevent the 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 the, the true sourcing of funds. You add that to the brand of whether you wear a blue hat or a red hat, and that creates what essentially are the two main functioning purposes of a party. They're not organizations where there's a whole lot of investment by 99% of the people who are quote unquote members of the Republican or, or, or the Democratic Party. There's really very, there's literally no stake other than showing up and voting once every couple of years. And how hard is it to, to, to start a new party in the United States? Oh, it's extraordinarily difficult. It's 50 by 50 states. Everyone has its own different uh, methods and manners. So you have to organize across 50 different states. Um, it's, it's extraordinarily expensive. You have to go through the laborious task of gathering signatures, often county by county. It's, just, it's, it's a nightmare. So are there regulations in these 50 states that are, 50, 50 states that are actually discouraging the, the emergence yeah, of new parties? in many cases, yes. And remember, the rules were written by Republicans and Democrats who have so, an interest in no parties so again, emerging. So the party system, then the two-party system is actually, again, based on exclusion, right? It's based on the very notion point. that no that's one can very, join it. That's a very good point. It's not like we just decided, oh, let's only have two parties. It emerged, they calcified, and then they institutionalized state by state these basically obstacles that make it virtually impossible unless you have an extraordinary amount of money and widespread, you know, uh, organizational capacity to actually move an agenda forward. Since since you're involved in a lot of these things, I, I have to ask you, is there any possibility of a third party emerging now among uh, former Republicans uh, who could not uh, suffer Trump? The short answer is yes. The long answer is it would be it's, it would be a very extraordinarily laborious task. It's easier to do what Trump did and just hijack the party, <laughs> which is what Bernie Sanders was trying to do. Right, right, and that and that becomes easier as they get weaker. By the way, and as they lose popular support, remember Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders both rose to power and prominence by running against their respective party <clears throat> leaders. The system is rigged, in Bernie Sanders' vernacular. It's this, the establishment is the swamp, right? When he was talking literally in the primaries about the Republican elite, the Republican establishment, the need to vanquish these Republicans who sold you out, these globalist capitalists, right? The language is eerily similar. And it was all kind of populist in tone, but anti-establishment. And it was, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were tapping into the rejection of their own parties by their own quote unquote members. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so all of these are signs, I think, of weak parties, um, um, the inability of the elites, the, the, the inability of elites to control kind of what the conversation is and what consensus should be and even what facts are. And that I think is probably the vacuum that Applebaum was talking about mm-hmm. in the American, in, 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 our, in our own two-party American democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm wondering, what does it mean for the party system, if anything, that so many people opt out of it, particularly in California? Where, where are undecideds or whatever they're called now, whatever we're called now, uh, vis-a-vis the other parties in, in terms of quote-unquote membership? Yeah, that's a really good question because in many ways we've kind of reached the end point of this. So just real quickly, what we have been seeing since 1992, since Ross Perot, a hemorrhaging amongst both major parties and loss of members where people are just opting out of being quote-unquote affiliated with either major party. The fastest growing segment of the electorate is what we call decline to states. I don't the want decline to state, right? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not interested in being in a party, but I want to vote. Just recently, this is a really recent, like in the last year, what we have seen is a decline in decline to states. 
This is really fascinating. Wait, wait, here, where do they go? They're going back to the parties. Oh here, my God. Yeah, here's why, here's why. The hyper-politicization is forcing people to take a side and there's a recognition that not that disaffiliating makes people feel like they're less involved. Like it's gotten that, the polarization has gotten that bad. People okay. have, for 20 years have been opting out and now they're saying, I, I got to get back in. Like I've, I've got to take a position, right? We've got to be forced back into this, this ugliness that I do not like. Wow, wow, yeah. wow. Yeah. So, so, so I think it's a troubling sign. I don't think it's a good sign. And, and so, but, but, but previously, as people were leaving, what effect does that have on the party? That makes them that makes them even more of an empty shell. That they're actually no, 100%. so, so they're extreme. large brand, yes. more large brands with fewer people involved in them, and therefore more extreme. But they, but yet they're still run. They're still in a newspaper, Democrat and Republican, and the average reader will say they're 50, 50, 50 and fifty. And what, how, so how big is the Republican Party right now? I'm just curious. Actually, the size is Democrat, Republican, just to California, Democrat, Republican declined a state. Democrats are about 42% in California. Republicans are sitting at about 25% and about 25, 26% are declined a state. So Republicans are running third. Yeah. In a two party third. system in California. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that unique to the, to in the United States, or are there other parallels? Well, see, here's it gets complicated because some states don't even you don't even register in a party. Texas, you don't register in a party. You you register and then you go pull. You ask for a Republican or Democratic ballot, which I guess you can kind of assume what party you're in based off of what ballot you pull. But you can literally walk into the primary and say, "I want to vote for the Democrats this year," or "I want to vote for the Republicans this year." And every state is different, so it's extremely hard. Like I was saying logistically, every state literally does it differently. So we can guess, kind of make some hypo hypothetical guesses at how many Republicans and Democrats are. The way we normally do it is we do a national poll and we, we ask people how they self-identify. But it's very crude. It's a very crude instrument. Given your, your, your newfound, well, your, your nurtured fear of authoritarianism, do you believe in multi, <laughs> uh, do you think it's even worth, I mean, despite how hard it may be, is it worth the United States ever to consider uh, a, a, creating a multi-party system? Would that help uh, alleviate the extremism in the parties? You know, I, don't, I was going to ask you that question. I, 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 think, I think it's inevitable, but by the time we break down the calcified institutional structure of the two-party system, like by the time there actually is a third party, I think that that basically breaks the dam. And I don't know that parties, they, they, first of all, they will not be anything like they are right now or ever have been. I think they will be very fluid, transitional, single issue based entities that emerge depending on the issues of the day. It's not right. like I think what you see in maybe a, a Spain, right? You're dealing right. with that in Spain right. right now. Yeah. Right? Is parties will kind of emerge based off of this issue or that issue. And th there's no, there's no, family loyalty like in the states we hand down your party label like your my father was a dodger fan my grandfather was a dodger fan my son's a dog you just hand it down right you bequeath right. your party registration like your religion right um you don't see that in a lot of other western democracies the, the new parties emerge all the time and they disappear and some parties are only regional not national yeah. and yeah 
it just seems a lot more fluid somehow and a less and it and allows for more a, a multiplicity of opinions and and it, and more of a discussion and and it actually allows like a hard left and a center left to distinguish themselves literally institutionally mm-hmm. which is really helpful or, or hard right or hard or, or center right um yeah and here it's just as we talk about wings but i never know what exactly it means and somehow sometimes i don't know let's say the squad i know they're a media phenomenon in the democratic house but how big are they really and how is, is that really a wing or is that you know what i mean i wish they were if they if they were institutionalized we could talk about the squad party for instance but and maybe and we would say how many members they had and so but now it's simply sort of a personality phenomenon right it's not i've got to say it's really more about tone than it is about substance well and i'm not going to say, say that there aren't policy differences there are and they're very significant but i don't mean New policy, deal medicare for all i'm not saying policy i'm saying it's not actually a wing six people does not a wing make yeah yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. But it just, I, mean, I just, if, if they were broken into parties based on even tone or policy, that would make it easier for us to negotiate these opinions somehow. Yeah. And then maybe that's an argument for more structure. Yeah, right. Exactly. That it's not that you're not just acknowledged by the New York Times to be the quote unquote squad or the yellow dogs, that you're actually a formal the, the formal distinction being made with that, you know, sub parties that, that would really be helpful. And people, and then, and actually, if we actually had parties that function, we could actually pay our dues and vote on which sec- segment of the party should lead the party. This, the, but now it's just, this is a, is a morphous behind the scenes struggle that makes us, it's like, like Joe Biden. I'm grateful that he's president and the tone he's taken and, and the, the things like the infrastructure that he's, that he's focusing on, but it almost seems like an accident of his personality as a, <laughs> you know what I mean? As a, yeah. as a choice, like I chose the Biden. Accident. It's like a Mr. Right. Magoo kind of accident. Right. right. Does, that, does that make sense? Like yeah. I didn't choose it, but like, thank God he's a mild mannered right. guy who wants to do right. big things quietly. Yeah. 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 But I didn't get to choose that. No one asked me to choose that. Well, that's the difficulty, right, of a, of a two-party system, too, is you, it's always the lesser of two evils, is what people say, is I don't want either of these people, so who's the worst, and then I'll vote against that. And that creates what we call negative partisanship, meaning people vote against what they're for rather than for what they're for. And to go full circle, negative partisanship leads to demonizing the other party, which leads to the decline in mutual toleration and institutional forbearance, which leads to authoritarianism, which you were worried about on your flight from New York on Continental uh, 742. You are so good at this. (laughs) Good talking to you. Great to see you, brother. All right. Bye. Thanks again for visiting with Gregory Rodriguez and Mike Madrid on this episode of Americanata. If you've enjoyed the discussion, please help us out, share, review, and give us five stars. We'll talk to you next episode.